The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, it is good to be gathered with your people, to come clean of our sins and confess them, and to experience your mercy new this morning, Lord, together to worship you together as a family of God. We thank you for this great privilege, Lord. God, as we turn to your word, we are trusting that you will impress it on our hearts, that you will encourage us with the good news, and that you will challenge us to spread it generously everywhere we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, uh, welcome to Pastor Jonathan. So good to have you here, finally. Jonathan started on Monday, for those of you who don't know. Um, Julie Wagnitz, our bass player, and I were just talking beforehand about how spoiled we have been at Jacobswell Church. Um, I know many pastors who, who lament over having trouble finding someone to lead music with quality, and God has given us three very gifted musicians with Jason Steger, if you were here way back, Pastor Chad, and now Pastor Jonathan, and so we are so thankful uh, for God's abundant generosity to us. And so, welcome. We praise God that you're here. Um, Jonathan is going to be doing a lot more of the music. He'll be caring for the leaders of the church, uh, the volunteer leaders, and uh, writing Bible studies and a lot of other things. Uh, but so, so glad that God has provided Jonathan and his family for us uh, to minister here. Um, I remember when Pastor Chad first got here, uh, he challenged me to a game of racquetball. Um, for those of you who know me, I, I like sports a little bit, and so I agreed to go and play Chad and racquetball, and so we laced up the shoes. We went out to the YMCA, and we hit, a, we hit the ball around, and well, needless to say, that first time that I played Pastor Chad, to my great surprise, he whooped me, okay? He beat me pretty bad, and so I went home, and we said, all right, let's, let's play again next week, and so I, I, I went home, and, and I realized for the first time that there's actually strategy to racquetball, that you just don't hit it really hard against the front wall and then run around and do what you can, that, that like there's actually places you shall be and ways you should hit it and things like that. So I went home and I pulled up YouTube, right? Like any person would do to learn how do I play racquetball better? And I learned, okay, there are certain spots on the court you should stand and there are certain ways you can serve that are to your advantage and there are certain places and with certain strength that you should hit the ball. And so I went and I learned all these things from YouTube without telling Pastor Chad. And the next week we got together and I beat him and it was great. And he's like, what happened? I'm like, well, I went on YouTube and I started to learn how to play racquetball. He's like, that's cheating. I'm like, that's not cheating, that's learning, right? Like, can I learn how to play the game better? But Pastor Chad got the last laugh because after that, he consistently beat me time and time and time again. So maybe he went on YouTube, I don't know. But, you know, YouTube uh, is very helpful for people who are unequipped in certain areas of their life. I I thank God for YouTube. It has saved me plenty of money. 
Um, I would be a much poorer man if it weren't for YouTube. Uh, not only has YouTube taught me how to play racquetball, but it has taught me how to tile my floor, how to change a shower head, a sink, how to caulk around a sink, uh, how to unfreeze an old iPad, even how to hang up a zip line or how to, uh, how to, how to solve a, a lock combination that I have forgotten the combination to. Uh, YouTube has saved me lots of money because it has equipped me to do things that I just was not unequ- that, that I was unequipped to do, things that I didn't know how to do. If you remember over a year ago, I took a survey of the congregation and I asked the question, what barriers do you have to sharing your faith? And really there were two answers that rose above all the rest of the responses. And one response, the most popular response, was a fear of rejection, which I completely understand. You know, I have friends, I'm a conflict avoider, I like people, and so I don't want to be rejected either. The second biggest barrier for people to sharing their faith, not by much, was that people in large feel unequipped. They feel unequipped to share their faith with others. They wonder, what do I say? Like, how do I even get into a conversation about faith topics? And what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? What do I do then? Right? And so we look for a YouTube channel. How do we share our faith with others? Well, today we have something better than YouTube. We have one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. We have the Apostle Paul. And he shows us in very accessible ways how we can share our faith. He, he models for us how we can tell others about Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're trying to figure out what you believe, this is a great Sunday to be here because you'll learn the fundamentals of what we believe. And if you're here today and you've been a Christian for, for 30 years, it's a great Sunday to be here because God is going to instruct us and show us again through the model of Paul of how we can share Jesus with the world around us. If you would please open up to Acts chapter 26. It is in page 935 of the Red Bible and page 1214 of the Children's Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible with you as a gift from Jacob's Well Church. Now, just to remind us of the setting, uh, Paul is in Caesarea and he is called into the audience hall, hall, the audience hall to defend his innocence. And Paul is called forward not only before Governor Festus, but also before the Jewish king Agrippa and before the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And so to put it in today's context, imagine that you were called into an auditorium to defend yourself. And in the auditorium was Mayor Jim Schmidt and Governor Scott Walker and the Green Bay Police Chief and Mark Murphy, the president of the Packers and other prominent people of community. Imagine all of these people are there and you come before them to defend yourself. This was the setting that Paul was in. And yet what we'll see is that Paul uses this opportunity not only to defend his innocence, but also to share Jesus. And so let's start by looking at this. Let's, let's start with just the first three verses. Read along with me if you would. 26.1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate 
that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Let's pause there for a second. I briefly mentioned this last Sunday at the second service, but King Agrippa was married to a woman named Bernice. Now, Bernice was not only his wife and the queen, Bernice was also his sister, okay? Which we all know is very wrong in a whole lot of ways. And Bernice was a woman that was a scandalous woman. Um, she was kind of a Jezebel. She had, she had gone after many men for their money, okay? And so here is this, this man and this woman, these scandalous people. And how does Paul address them? He says, I consider myself fortunate that I am before you today. You know, I think we can learn something from Paul here. There's something that we need to note, that even though he is standing before scandalous people, he treats them with respect, with dignity, and with honor. 1 Peter 3.15 says it this way. It says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And then it says, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so today, Paul is going to model for us how can we share Jesus boldly with our friends, with our coworkers, with our family, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so as we look at Paul's speech today, there are really three elements I want us to notice, okay? The first element is that Paul shares, he tells his Jesus story. Now, in telling his Jesus story. Paul starts with his before Jesus story. Let's look at verse 4. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, after Addressing King Agrippa with, with respect and honor, Paul now lists out his religious resume, where he was before he met Jesus. He talks about how he was part of the, the strictest form of Judaism called the Pharisees. Now, I know the Pharisees often get a bad rap in the church because that's often, they're often the target of Jesus' rebukes and comments and things like that. But the Pharisees were the best denomination of Judaism. They were the ones that believed the Bible was God's word. They, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in hell. They believed in sin. They believed in atonement. They believed in miracles. They believed in angels. They were the best of, they, they were the fundamentalists of the time. And Paul says, I was one of them. And you could ask anyone. I was a really good Jew. I was a great Jew. I was an obedient Jew. And Paul moves forward. Not only listing that out, but also telling us that not only was he a faithful Jew and a model Jew, but he was also a zealous Jew. Verse 6, he says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it, though, incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. We'll come back to verses 6 through 8 later, okay? But now here you're going to see Paul's testimony that he was not only an obedient Jew, but he was a zealous Jew, okay? Verse 9, 
He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. You know, Paul here is identifying with his audience. He is saying, you hate Jesus. You hate followers of Jesus. I know all about that. I was the pro at hating Jesus. I was actually commissioned and paid to go and persecute followers of Jesus. You hate Jesus? I hated Jesus more. You hate Jesus followers? I hated Jesus followers more. He says he even went around casting votes to put them to death and then traveled the world in, I love this term, a raging fury that is madly obsessed against them to persecute them, to put them to death. He was a devout Jew. He was a zealous Jew. And he was a hater of Jesus Christ. But then something happened. Someone happened. Jesus happened. Paul continues with his Jesus story, verse 12. He says, in this connection, the connection of going to persecute Christians and kill Christians, he said, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, when the sun is brightest, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know, we talked about this several weeks ago, but a goad was an instrument used by a master to help control the direction of his animals. And so if, if their oxen was headed towards a cliff, they would use a goad and they would strike the animal to get them in the right direction. Now, now make no mistake, these goads were not comfortable things. In fact, they would inflict a little bit of pain to get them going in the right direction, but it would keep them from going the wrong direction, from, from bigger destruction. And, and what Jesus is saying here is, is Paul, I have been goading you. I have been doing things in your life to bring me to yourself, and you have been fighting against it. And you know, not only is it hard to do, it's actually futile. You can resist the goads all you want, but you know in the end, I'm going to win. And so Jesus brings Paul into a saving relationship with himself on this Damascus Road experience. But what is so cool is that Paul knows his Jesus story does not end here. You see, all of us have a Jesus story. If you are a Christian, you have a Jesus story. And that Jesus story does not end at your conversion. As we read on, we see that 
that Jesus' story of Paul includes a divine commission. Verse 16, Jesus says to Paul, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God commissions Paul. Jesus commissions Paul to go and to be a witness, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles, to to non-Jews throughout the world. And Paul goes on to explain that he was not disobedient to this commissioning, but he went to go and tell others about Jesus. And so that's why he's there today, standing on trial. Paul continues his Jesus story, verse 21. He says, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. To this day I have the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. You see, a part of Paul's story was not just the mountaintop experiences. It was also going through the trials of persecution. And he can say, to this day, even in the suffering, even in the pain, even in the beatings, God is with me. He is my help. Even now, you see, such an important part of our Jesus story is not just that God saved me, but that I have gone through trials, I have gone through the valleys, and I can testify to you that God is with me even in the bottom of the pits. And so this is Paul's Jesus story. He has the pre-Jesus story about his religious heritage and his hatred for Christ. He has the come-to-Jesus story, right? in which Jesus comes and appears to him and and saves him and draws him to himself. But his story does not end there. It continues throughout the rest of his life as he goes and follows the commission of Christ. And even as he is persecuted unjustly, testifying that God is always with him. See, friends, as we consider and think about how can we share Jesus with others, one of the most priceless things we can do is share our Jesus story. Our Jesus story is a powerful story. You see, as Paul shared his Jesus story, it was a story that King Agrippa, a Jewish man, could relate to. And so he shares his Jewish Jesus story. And and we have a Jesus story, not not to hoard for ourselves or to be ashamed of, but to share with the world. You know, I can testify to the power of a Jesus story. Because God used a Jesus story even in my own life for my own conversion. You see, my Jesus story is before I came to know Jesus, I also was a very religious person. We went to church every Sunday, but I hated church. I hated Christianity. I would never said that out loud. But, but Sundays were the worst day of my week, right? It, it's ruining everything. I can't go outside and play. I have to go to church, right? I hated it. But then God was goading me to himself through some friends. And I went to this, this camp. 
And over the course of a week after my senior year of high school, I heard the good news of the gospel about who Jesus is and what he did for me, how he died for me, and how God wants a relationship with me. And at the end of that week, they gave an opportunity for people to stand up and to say if that week they gave their life to Christ. And so they handed the microphone around to all of these high school kids and, and they would pass the mic and they would say, this week I gave my life to Jesus. And then they would cry and hug. I'm like, why are you crying and hugging? Like you just signed up for religion. And it's really not that cool. Like it's, it's kind of boring. Like why are you crying? And so the mic went around and people are crying and hugging. And I just, I have no idea what's going on, Okay. And everyone stands up to go get on the bus. And the MC says, wait, we have one more, one more person in the back. And there was an adult guest there. My guess is he was 70, 80 years old. He stood up on a cane. And his Jesus story was simply this. This week I gave my life to Jesus. And that was such a small testimony. But it sent me spinning. Because I thought to myself, if this guy doesn't have it all figured out, and he's 70 or 80... Maybe I don't have it figured out. I mean, who would think, out of all the high schoolers there, the testimony that would stick out to me the most was a 70-year-old man standing up on a cane. Who would have guessed that? And yet, on the bus ride home, I asked my leader, I said, hey, can I have a Bible? He's like, here, yeah, you can have a Bible. And everyone else is asleep. I have a light on. I'm the only one awake. I'm reading through the Bible, and Jesus draws me to himself. But the story doesn't end there. As I walked with Jesus through high points and low points, seeking to follow his commission, I can testify that Christ has been with me every step of the way, even when I didn't feel like he was there. You see, testimonies are powerful. Jesus' stories are powerful. We, we know this from advertisers, right? If you ever mistakenly turn on an infomercial, what do they have? Testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony about how this thing works because stories, testimonies are powerful. Just this past week, I saw two powerful testimonies. One of a guy named Brian Head Welch who used to play for corner, I think still does, maybe even, but he was using drugs and playing for this, this renegade band, Corn when Jesus came to him. And Jesus Gave him new life. I also read the story of Alice Cooper, who I had no idea was a Christian. And he shared his Jesus story. And one of the funnest parts of it for me was that he said how much he loves R.C. Sproul. And I was like, what? You, like, are, you even know who R.C. Sproul is? You may not, but he's someone that I have an affinity for. And I'm like, this is so cool. And these, these stories, these testimonies are an encouragement. See, if you are here today and you are a Christian, you have a Jesus story. You have a Jesus story. You may say, but my story's boring, right? I was never on drugs. I was never Alice Cooper, right? But it is the story that God has ordained to give to you. It is a story that is precious to the Lord, precious to angels, precious to heaven, and should also be precious to you. And God is calling you not to keep that story to yourself, but to tell your Jesus story to those God has put around you. And so how do we share Jesus with others? Well, one element of that can be to tell your Jesus story. But it can't end there. We must also proclaim the Jesus message. I don't know if you noticed this, but embodied in, in Paul's testimony of his Jesus story, he also shares the message of Jesus. Now remember, King Agrippa is, 
is steeped in Judaism, and he's the primary audience for Paul. I mean, everyone else is listening, but his direction is towards King Agrippa. And so he shares the Jesus message in Jewish terms. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our Father, right? King Agrippa, you, me, our fathers, right? Us, our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. What is the hope that Paul is accused for? What was the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel? Why did they worship day and night? Verse 8 tells us. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul reiterates this later. Skip down with me to verse 22 and 23, showing how the roots of this Jesus message are formed in the Old Testament. Verse 22, he says, To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses, both Old Testament, said would come to pass. That the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophesied one, the one that they were looking to for their salvation, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Friends, there are over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, so that people could identify who he is when he came. But Paul points that the most important of these prophecies is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 7 in the Old Testament prophesying about the Christ to come, says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth, which Christ fulfilled when he approached the cross, not defending himself. And then Isaiah 25, 8, says this about the Christ that will come. It says, He will swallow up death, and victory. He will, what great imagery. He will swallow up death and victory. How does, how does someone, how does someone swallow up death and victory? They raise from the dead. <laughs> they raise from the dead. You know, when I ask Christians, what is the gospel? I will tell you that they almost always, hopefully, include the cross, Jesus' death. But many of the times, they do not talk about the resurrection. The resurrection is so central to our Jesus message, to our gospel message, because if Christ is dead, we're still, we're still stuck in our sins. But Jesus has risen again. Jesus is alive. In Paul's commissioning to spread Jesus' message, Christ says this in verse 18 to talk about the importance of his death and resurrection. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, Paul, go and proclaim the good news of the gospel for this reason, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Why did Jesus die and rise again? It tells us here, so that we could see the light of the glory of God, a greater light than the sun, so that we could be released from slavery to Satan and become children of God, so that we can be forgiven of each and every one of all of our sins, both past, present, and future. And so that we can be sanctified, grow in Christ's likeness by faith. You see, not only did the prophecies of the Old Testament point to Jesus, really all of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Even the stories pointed to Jesus. The stories of the Exodus and freedom pointed to the freedom that we have in Christ. The sacrificial system in which they would go and take an animal to die on their behalf for their sin to make them ceremonially clean pointed to Jesus who would be our great sacrifice, who would atone for all of our sin and who would cleanse us not only externally and ceremonially but internally in the death of our heart. You see, after rising from the dead, Jesus appears to the apostles And this time, Thomas is with them. In Luke 24, we read that Jesus says to his disciples this, after his resurrection, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You see, when he opens their mind to understand the Scriptures, what they see is that the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Thus it is written means in the Old Testament. The Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You see, friends, the Old Testament is a precious gift given to us to show us the richness of Christ's death and resurrection. Tim Keller gives this illustration, which I have found just tremendously helpful. He says, you know, the Old Testament is like a dimly furnished room. He says, all the furniture of the gospel is there, right? You have the holiness of God and his law. You have the sinfulness of man and all of their actions and disobedience. You have the sacrifice of of an unblemished sacrifice to cover atonement for someone's sins. All the furniture of the gospel is there, but the room is kind of dimly lit, But then you get to the New Testament, and it's like the switch gets flipped on, and you can see the gospel with clarity, that all of it pointed to Christ. You see, friends, we can't simply tell our Jesus story. We also have to proclaim the Jesus message, and it is the same Jesus message found in Genesis through Revelations. That Jesus is the Christ, that he died on the cross as a penalty for our sins, and he rose on the third day to give us newness of life in him. We must proclaim this Jesus message. Finally, the final element that we see in Paul's message is that he calls to Jesus' faith. This is Paul addressing the audience, verse 22 again. He says, To this day I, Paul, have had the help that comes from God, And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but that the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, 
Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. I love this. Can you imagine? Paul is is defending himself, defending the gospel. Then this governor, Festus, shouts out. He interrupts him. Dude, you are crazy. Like, you have been studying way too much. You need to get around people more, right? Get away from those books. What's wrong with you? There's no way that this happens, right? I mean, people don't just, just raise from the dead. This doesn't just happen. Can we give Governor Festus a little bit of credit? He's right. This is crazy. Just this past week, I was sitting with a friend, talking to him about Jesus, and I said, do you believe in God? And he's like, yeah, I believe there's a higher power. There has to be something. So, well, do you believe in Jesus? He's like, yeah, I think Jesus existed. What do you think about Jesus? Well, he was a really good guy. Maybe he did some of those miracles. Do you think Jesus died on the cross? Yeah, I think he probably died on the cross. And then I got to the resurrection. I said, do you think he rose from the dead? He goes, that's a harder one to believe. It is. Like, like, please, don't think this is easy to believe. Do you know anyone else who was dead for three days? The King James Version says he was dead, dead, struck a spear in his heart, and yet he rose from the dead. This is hard to believe. It's a miracle of God. And yet we know that God specializes in miracles. That God can do all things, even the impossible. He can even raise a man from the dead. Verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words for the king. And so he's now turning his attention from from Festus, who is a Gentile governor. He's turning it now to King Agrippa, who is a Jew. He says, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. You know, Paul, just to summarize, in essence, what he's saying, he's saying, you know, Governor Festus, I know you've been here just a few days, and this story sounds crazy ridiculous, right? There's no Twitter, there's no Facebook, it, it, the, the news doesn't spread fast. I know this sounds crazy, but King Agrippa, you've been here. You've been around this territory. You know the testimonies of what has happened, right? You've, you've heard credible evidence That indeed Christ has has raised from the dead. You know this. You have heard this. You know, as we look through the story of Jesus' resurrection, this is not done in a corner. First, he appears to women that come to his tomb. Then he appears to the, the, the disciples on the Maish Road. Then he appears to the apostles. But I think the most convincing all is what's recorded in 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul says that Jesus, at one particular time, appeared to more than 500 brothers. And then, in, and then Paul says, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why does he add that? Why does he say, most of whom are still alive? Because he's saying, listen, you can go ask them. 
Like, go ask them if they saw Jesus. I mean, if you're going to make up a story about someone being alive, it's going to be like you saw them in your attic, right? Or you saw them when you were driving in your car. You're not going to say, hey, they appeared at a conference, right? Because what can you do? You can go to anyone who went to that conference and say, did you see this guy? And Paul's saying, it is certain, it is true, it is historical fact. Jesus appeared to all of these people. Go ask them, they're still alive. You know, even non-Christians testified to the validity of the historical resurrection of Jesus. Josephus, who was a precise historian, who was not a Christian, wrote in his Antiquity of the Jews in 93 AD, he says, When Pilate, upon the accusations of the first men amongst us, condemned Jesus to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him. For he appeared to them on the third day, living again, as the divine prophets foretold, along with a myriad of other marvelous things concerning him. Jesus was not, I'm sorry, Jesus, Josephus was not a Christian, but he could not deny the evidence. He did not trust in Christ as his Savior, but he knew as historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Paul appeals to the Jewish king Agrippa, knowing that Christ's resurrection was done in open public for all to see before hundreds of witnesses. And yet Paul's appeal to Agrippa does not end there. In front of all these people, Paul calls King Agrippa to put his faith in Jesus. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You know, Paul's intention was obvious to King Agrippa. Paul's not simply defending his innocence. He's not simply sharing his Jesus story or telling the Jesus message. But Paul is calling King Agrippa to trust in Christ. And that's why King Agrippa says to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And I love how Paul responds. Paul does not say, you know, I, I don't want to force my beliefs on you. He doesn't say, hey, hey, King Agrippa, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Nor does he say, hey, I just, I'm, just trying, I'm just trying to tell you my story, right? What does Paul say? How does he respond? Verse 29. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. This is one of those drop-the-mic moments, isn't it? Paul's saying, yes. Yes, I am trying to convert you. Yes, I am trying to persuade you to be a Christian. I want you to be like me, to have all the riches I have, except for these chains. I read a quote this week. I think it was from Ravi Zachariah. It said, Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. 
This is why Paul would say, I want you and everyone to come to Christ because you are dead and I want you to be alive. I want you to know the joy of a Savior. You know, we talked about how miraculous the resurrection was of Jesus, but yours and mine is no less miraculous. Paul's primary hope for this audience is that they would trust in Christ and be saved. You know, in sales, there's a famous phrase, closing the deal, right? I don't think Paul is trying to close the deal because if you've read most of Paul's New Testament writings, he he knows God's the one that closes the deal. But Paul calls him to put faith in Jesus Christ. He, He puts the ball in his court. He says, you now know too much. You know too much information not to make a decision about this Jesus. And he calls him to repent and put his faith in Jesus. So that, verse 18 says, turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. And so, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, let me put the ball in your court. You now know too much information. You know that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again. What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you repent? Will you turn to him? Will you find joy and riches in life in him? Let me end with this. When I was a kid, I got to go to the David Copperfield show at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. It was a pretty big deal. David Copperfield was a magician, for those of you who don't know. On national TV, he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. It was pretty amazing. But, but one time, I got to go and watch David Copperfield's show. And afterwards, we stood in line to get his autograph. And so, walked up, waited in line, met the guy, shook his hand. He signed like a, a headshot, right, and gave it to me. And I was so excited that I got to meet David Copperfield. And so I, I, the whole week, I just found ways to insert David Copperfield, right? So I'd be talking to my friends. I'd be like, oh, you got a tooth pulled? You know who else has teeth? Uh, David Copperfield has teeth, and they're really white teeth, right? And, and guess what? I got to meet David Copperfield this week. I shook his hand. I have this autographed picture, right? Because I, I so badly wanted to name drop David Copperfield. You know people who name drop. You know you name drop. Right? We name drop things because we think this is amazing. Paul here finds a way to name drop Jesus. You know, this passage has challenged us to consider how we are to share Jesus, but the whole story of Paul's trial also challenges us to consider where to share Jesus. Now, if you remember, Paul was on trial for two years, right? He stood trial before the Roman tribunal, before, before the Jews and the Jerusalem council, He stood before Governor Felix in Caesarea and now before Festus and now before King Agrippa. And every time Paul is given the platform to defend his innocence, you know what he does? He shares Jesus. Now, make no mistake, this was not Paul's game plan. Paul's game plan was not, hey, I'm going to get arrested for doing nothing wrong, stand before courts and people, and, and there I'll share about Jesus. This was the platform God gave him, and he used it. He transformed it for the extraordinary purpose of sharing Jesus. Friends, you have been giving many platforms. I can tell you that probably no one will ever come up to you and say, hey, tell me about Jesus. But God has given you platforms at work, in your community, on your rec leagues, right? Like, like maybe you have, a, you, have a, you have a temporary summer job, and you say, I'm doing this for the ordinary purpose of earning some money so I can pay for college or car or whatever. But you know what? God has given us an extraordinary platform to share Jesus. 
And so whatever platforms you have, God is calling you to use them as a platform to share Jesus by telling them your Jesus story. Because it's a good one. It's the one that God has given to you. To proclaim to them the wonderful Jesus message. How can it be that my God would die for me and rise on the third day? And to call them to life-giving Jesus faith. Let's pray. Lord, I, I confess that I am too often stuck in the ordinariness of my platforms. In the ordinariness of my circles. Lord, teach me, teach us that these circles that you have put, in a, put us in are, are providential. They're not by mistake. That they can be transformed into platforms to share Jesus. Lord, Lord we need you. We, we thank you for the promise that you're with us as we go and share Jesus with others. God, help us to share our stories. They are good ones because they're miraculous stories of people who have come from death to life. Help us to share the good news of the message of Jesus and help us to call others to place their faith in you as well so that they can go from slavery to Satan to a child of God, from death to life. Lord, as we turn to your table again, we're reminded of the good message of Jesus, that he has come, that he has sacrificed himself just as the prophets foretold. And that he had risen from the grave. And that he is alive now, ruling and reigning. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts as we participate in this sacrament that you have given to us to remind us of the good news of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.